Я хочу розказати вам про наші 13 днів міцної війни, яку ми не розпочинали і не хотіли. Всі прокинулись, ми, діти, всі ми, живі люди, вся Україна, і відтоді не спить, який не зламав нас, мобілізував нас, кожного з нас і кожну. Ми усвідомили, українці стали героями, сотні, сотні тисяч людей. Слава великій Україні, слава великій Британії. Владимир Путін's war of aggression against Ukraine enters its third week as Russia continues to indiscriminately bomb civilian targets and as more than 2 million refugees flee the country. Ukrainian resistance continues to be fierce and defiant as the defenses of major cities like Kyiv, Kharkiv and Mariupol hold fast against the Russian onslaught. Intensifying Western sanctions and increasing boycotts by Western companies effectively unplug Russia from global markets and finance. And the debate continues about how to arm Ukraine with the weapons it needs to defend itself, most importantly fighter jets, to prevent Russia from dominating the skies. So stick around because we've got a lot to discuss. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location in Ukraine is my old friend and colleague, Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor in the faculty of International Relations at Mieszkov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. Welcome back to the podcast, Volodymyr. Hi, Hi, Volodymyr. And joining us from London is Marina Voronyuk, an associate fellow at the Royal United Service Institute. Welcome to the Vertical Marina. Hello, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. And joining us from Kyiv Oblast is Alexander Hara, a former official with the Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council, who is currently a fellow at the Center for Defense Strategies. Welcome back to the Vertical, Alexander. Okay. Good to see you. So to start us off, I just wanted to get a sense of how things are on the ground at the moment. Um, I mean, we're all watching it from afar, but the two of you are, are up close. Marina, I want to start with you. You're in London, but you are an Odessan, and I am certain you are in touch with friends and family in Odessa. What are you hearing? Yeah, there is a feeling of resignation and determination to withstand. Uh, people in Ukraine are enduring their heavy losses with a very, with a great fortitude. Uh, many joined the grassroots uh, volunteer efforts and helping the army or are ready to fight uh, having joined the ranks of the territorial defense. Some women and children sought safety abroad, many of them crossing the border with the neighboring Moldova. So we are already seeing uh, the, the re refugee crisis unfolding as we speak. Odessa has not been so far under a massive uh, attack, apart from the sporadic airstrikes and shelling from the sea, uh, targeting military objects, command and control units in the region. Uh, there is a palpable tension in the in the air, with many expecting, of course, this massive attack uh, to be carried out in the coming days. Uh, we know that Odessa is of uh, is of uh, great significance, uh, of of strategic. Uh, as well as symbolical value for Russia as a largely Russian-speaking uh, city. And, uh, you know, uh, I think that having seen Kharkiv, the, second, the, the first Russian, the biggest Russian-speaking city in Ukraine, being wiped out by Russian artillery and airstrikes, and nobody has doubts in Odessa that yes. a Russian army will have no reservations targeting this uh, Odessa uh, too. Yeah, no, it it does seem as I'm as I'm watching the advance, you know, from afar here, it seems obvious to me that Odessa is the next major city that is going to be targeted. I mean, the the Russian forces that who've taken Kherson are now moving west. They seem to be bogged down in Mykolaiv, but once they get past that, then Odessa is the is is the next target, which would effectively cut Ukraine off from the Black Sea. Volodya, you're an Odessan. How are how are you seeing this? Oh, I agree with Marina. I mean, I'm frankly surprised Odessa hasn't been attacked yet. 
Yeah, me too. You know, the, many people expected Odessa to be uh, the target in the first uh, stage of attacks. It didn't happen, luckily, for Odessa so far. Every time I speak about this subject, I'm almost afraid to speak about it because yeah. I think I say it's not attack, and then next morning or next night it is attack or something. So I don't want to bring bad luck to my yeah. hometown, but. Uh, but you know what I mean? Uh, Odessa is indeed very important, I think. And uh, why is it spared so far? There are many explanations. Uh, the Marina alluded to some. Uh, maybe they think that Odessa is too pro-Russian, so they want to spare it. But then what about Kharkiv, indeed? Because yeah, no, that, does, that doesn't make sense. pro-Russian segment of population is being raised to the ground, basically. So that must be something else. They want to bring land forces closer to, to Odessa, and that's why Mykolaiv battles matter. Yeah. Or, you know, the landing amphibious operation is risky, and there have been even rumors about riots of battleships, uh, a Russian naval, Navy in the Black Sea that they don't, didn't want to uh, actually land because they would know that we'd be landing mined beaches and uh, be exposed to uh, coast artillery and machine guns and so on. Odessa had the benefit of being prepared because uh, unlike other cities have been attacked immediately, uh, we already had yep. two weeks of preparing for that. So, so that's a big deal too. And then they, they don't have air superiority even, uh, yeah. which is a surprising element. I'm not a military expert, but the, the fact that Russia does not dominate the skies over Ukraine is it's remar that, it's, remar it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Yeah, and yeah, I, and I, several, I, several airplanes been downed around Odessa, and apparently, you know, and, and even as you know, one ship been sank. You know, yeah. so that's 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 something. You know, was due to very creative thinking of uh, uh, Ukrainian navy, which is very small. You know, but they managed to to think to uh, to think one of those uh, newer, more modern Russian ships. So we'll see what happens with Odessa. But uh, so far, of course, uh, we are really troubled for our hometown. But many other cities in Ukraine, unfortunately, had a much uh, worse fate in recent two weeks. Yeah, no, and as you and Marina are both Odessans, and I, of course, lived in Odessa in the early 90s and one of the happiest years of my life working at your university, Volodya. So if I'm going to take this very personally um, if, 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 if yeah. anything happens to Odessa. Thank you. Uh, Sasha, I want to bring you into the discussion because you are, you're located just south of Kiev, uh, near uh, Vasilkiv, which was the site of a fierce battle on February 26th at the airfield there. How do things look on the ground from your vantage point where you are? And how is Kiev holding out? Oh, well, uh, it's just terrific that uh, this uh, millennia-old town of Vassal Kiev uh, is being bombarded uh, almost every day. Uh, and the reason for that is just in strategic uh, position from the Odessa region, uh, I mean, the, in the, from Odessa direction towards Kiev, and there is an Air Force base, and the Russians were thinking of seizing uh, Vassil Kiev Air Base and Astomil Air Base, which is to the north of Kiev, and they were thinking to drop uh, paratroopers and weaponry uh, on those locations to encircle Kiev. So that's why it was, uh, it was a, the primary target uh, from the beginning. So uh, my daily routine begins at 5 a.m. when the Russians begin to shell and to rocket uh, this uh, town. And then there are some uh, explosions uh, during the day. Uh, today it was a pr pretty calm day, so I haven't heard any ballistic missiles flying overhead. Uh, if you're talking about the situation in the city, people get uh, used to this and even uh, do not um, make any, any let's say, uh, notice of uh, sirens uh, calling them for bomb shellers. Uh, and what I, I, I was surprised is these local people, and especially in uh, villages and small towns uh, nearby, uh, they took uh, hunting rifles, so they are, they are building uh, checkpoints, uh, along with the national police and the military, they are trying to, to protect their small places uh, of living, and they are they are determined to, to fight the Russian saboteurs who are operating over there. So a couple of days ago, uh, Fasti, which is the railroad uh, point nearby, uh, was attacked. Unfortunately, our armed forces uh, defeated uh, those units who are trying to seize this uh, town. Uh, if uh, they managed to, uh, to succeed, they, I would be encircled in, uh, in, 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 in by, by the Russians. And certainly they would move uh, northern direction to, to, to advance to Kiev because certainly the key uh, battle uh, is going to happen in and around Kiev. Yes. And we're already going into the third week of this now. Um, actually, we're recording today on Thursday. So today will mark the beginning of the third week in this. And Kiev is still standing. I mean, Kiev is still standing and is showing no signs 
of falling. How do you assess the situation outside Kyiv, Alexander? Well, uh, I have friends who are still there, and I, I have some plans to return uh, back to Kyiv as well. Uh, I, I have uh, I just know uh, humor is something that helps a lot of uh, our people. And I, yes. I have a, a friend who used to be a member of the uh, Reform Project uh, Unit uh, within, within Defense Ministry. He joined the Territorial Defense, and he was not happy that uh, uh, so far he hasn't seen uh, any Russian tanks, and he could not uh, apply his uh, javelin and to see see how this, uh, the, these boxes are being blown up. Uh, so he, he's a bit uh, disappointed with Russians. But in general, uh, people are, are getting ready. And I, I talked to my friends uh, about the, the whole uh, pre-war thing. Our government was trying to calm down a passion of, of the general public because they were worrying about economic situation. But in reality, our armed forces and our territorial defense has been uh, working hard to, to yeah. prepare to prepare for the assault. And the first days, first two days, showed that they, they were ready and they, 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 yeah. they stopped the Russian advance and broke uh, these uh, plans of the uh, easy uh, capturing of Kiev, killing uh, Zelensky and uh, marching uh, through Hrushatik Street with uh, their flags. Yeah, no, I don't think we're going to see that. And Sasha, you mentioned the humor. Um, this is, of course, a tragic situation, but the, the Ukrainian humor is something else that has kind of inspired the world right now. I mean, it's just a couple of jokes I heard to share with our listeners that uh, instead of Ukraine joining NATO, maybe NATO should join Ukraine. Um, the other one I saw was the, uh, the, the, the with the farmers towing away the Russian tanks that they took, and they said that Ukrainian farmers are now the fifth largest uh, military in, in, in Europe. So I, this is just uh, this humor in which is uh, Marina and Volodya's Odessans. You can certainly appreciate humor but the, the 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 humor that ukrainians are approaching this briefly, yeah sure go ahead Lord. Yeah, just briefly i mean on, on what you've discussed before with sasha uh, i mean uh it's really uh, you know surprising to some people how ukrainian military fights but there shouldn't be because it's yep. been a lot of work being done on this military in recent years they've gained a very a valuable experience in donbass they've got good training got good weapons uh, the morale is high you know they're defending their own land you know in many cases basically having kids somewhere at home and behind their backs. So it's really yeah. a motivation for them, unlike those Russian troops which are there. And uh, also I'm thinking as well about like how, how many of the major armies in the West would be able to withstand such assault that Russians are now waging in Ukrainian military. And I'm frankly puzzled in terms of trying to find possible answers to that question. I mean, obviously Americans would, but uh, who else? I don't know, Brits, French to some extent, I don't know. So it's no, really remarkable. It's really remarkable what's going on. And no, Russians that's... are terrified. Yeah. Russians are avoiding direct military combat yeah. for almost 10 days now. They're focusing on shelling the cities and civilians, and they are not mm -hmm. going into direct combat. Well, you probably saw some coverage and some footage today from near Bravari, where another column yeah. got ambushed, and they've lost a lot of vehicles there. And they are terrified of urban warfare. They don't want to go into Kiev yeah. because they know that you know around every corner there will be someone with javelin. And they are, you know, they are reassessing. Not not only they're bogged down. Not only it's bad logistics. Not only it's a lot of stealing in Russian military, obviously, and a lot of corruption. Right. Uh, they're out of gasoline, out of provision, out of food, all of that. But also terrified, you know, of what Ukrainians can do if they enter the big city, such a big city as Kiev, which is. Uh, not, not completely uh, empty now from civilians, but many people left, and it's, pro pro it's mostly just military people there who would deliver devastating blows to any of their armored uh, personnel. Uh, yeah, no, those, even those of us that were aware of how motivated and how well-trained uh, the Ukrainian armed forces were, um, I'm still surprised that they're, <laughs> that they're performing this well. I, I expected them to perform well. I didn't yeah. expect them to perform this well. And I right. certainly didn't expect the Russians to perform this poorly, which is truly mm -hmm. remarkable. Marina, did, really you want to, did you want to jump in here? Yes, I just wanted to say, to, to completely agree with what Volodymyr has said, because I think we, we see many military experts focusing on being preoccupied solely with the mistakes that Russian uh, militaries are doing at the moment and kind of mm -hmm. Putting, living in the shadows what the Ukrainian army is doing. So it's not only about, you know, bad preparedness of the Russian army or of the bad morale of those Russian conscripts, young, many of them young, you know, and not seemingly not uh, being aware what they are sent to do, really, you know. So I really think that we need to see the two sides of the equation. Yes. 
uh, what Vladimir has said. This is really a heroism, even though, I mean, we, we experts, we avoid sometimes to be pathetic, but I think we need to, we, we need to, to, to really uh, put a focus on this uh, side as well. Yeah, no, this it, 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 it's certainly impressive. And when this is all over, uh, presuming you, you, Ukraine, uh, you know, uh, uh, survives this, it is going to be really, really hard for both NATO and the European Union not to be a lot more receptive to Ukrainian membership than they had been up to this point. I mean, the way the Ukrainian armed forces are performing in the field right now, that's really got to be getting a lot of attention um, in Brussels, in two different buildings I can think of, you know, in, in Brussels at the moment. What I wanted to move into is because over the past couple of days, and none of us should be shocked by, by, by Putin's brutality, but the bombing of a maternity clinic at a children's hospital yesterday, that really shook a lot of people up. I mean, I was watching the news last night and literally cable news anchors were losing their composure on the air. You know, seasoned cable news anchors were losing their composure and breaking down on the, on the air witnessing this. And this is telling me that this has moved past the point of no return. I mean, Putin is now in the territory of Bashar al-Assad or Slobodan Milosevic. I mean, there is no coming back from this. There just isn't. And the more this drags on, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced of something. And that is we are witnessing one of two things right now. We are either witnessing the, the, the beginning of the end of a sovereign and independent Ukraine, which I hope to God is not the case, and I don't think is the case. But barring that, what we, we, we were witnessing is the end of Vladimir Putin. If this isn't the end of Ukraine, it's going to be the end of Putin. I don't see both surviving this intact. I just don't. I have a hard time visualizing it. And the more I think about it, the more I think the smart money is that we're on, we're looking at the beginning of the end of Putin. I don't see how he comes back from this. Um, Russia is not kind to leaders who lose major wars. And Putin mm -hmm. is losing a major war at the moment. The only question is how much destruction does Ukraine have to endure before we get to that point? Volodya, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, of course, uh, we all hope that the end days of Putin will be near and uh, it will end uh, sooner the better, but uh, who knows? Uh, he still has a lot of firepower, uh, not necessarily reserves uh, an immediate vicinity of Ukraine, uh, but uh, Russian army is bigger. I mean, they would have to mobilize uh, other units that would take time and money as well, and so it's not going to be available to him in the coming weeks. That's what most military experts are saying. Yeah. But he is still very dangerous, obviously. A cornered beast, a cornered animal is extremely dangerous. He's uh, someone who got himself up in the, uh, that escalation tree. And he is now, I don't know, you, even if he is assessing uh, his uh, chances of going down, climbing down that tree, whether he wants to do that or whether he can do that. And also a lot of people question if he is getting right information about what's going on yes. in, in Ukraine, because he's in his inner bubble. And perhaps people are bringing him the good news only. We are fine. We're doing just just great. Maybe just slight delay, but we are actually achieving all our objectives. If that is the case, he might, you know, endure more and more and, and say, okay, continue, go on, go on. If there will be more objective information brought to him that actually our troops, Russian troops, are in difficult situations here and there, you know, and uh, actually struggling, you know, maybe he would reassess, but 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 who knows? And uh, frankly, I think he can survive. He can survive uh, the, the, the defeat of Russian armies or some kind of defeat. Uh, I think he would be able to continue as a Russian leader, even if Ukraine would stand as an independent state next door to, to Russia. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, it's really up to, to Ukrainian uh, soldiers now to yeah. see, because there are several major elements. First, defense of Ukraine. Second, help of our Western partners, including helping us to defend Ukraine. And third, the pressure on Russia. But the pressure on Russia, of course, that's a separate, separate big question. You know, well, let's not go into there. It's not going to work fast, you know, but it's having an effect as well. It's having an effect. And it's like in the entire regime appears to be in denial. I mean, I, I'm sure you all saw Sergei Lavrov's so-called press yeah. conference. Um, and I mean, I, I used to say, I mean, Lavrov denied that Russia attacked Ukraine, which is just remarkable. He yeah. dismissed the bombing of a maternity hospital and a children's hospital as hysteria, the reaction to it as hysteria. And I, I used to joke yeah. that like- Right, right, right. his own press secretary called for this hospital to be bombed. I know, several I know. Prior to that. So how is he denying I know. that? 
Well, I used to I used to joke that Lavrov is like a mafia lawyer for Putin's criminal regime, but now I've decided to rethink that because it's just it's not fair to mafia lawyers. I mean, they deserve they they deserve better than that. Um, Marina, what are your thoughts on this? This that we are we are witnessing, perhaps, if not the end of Ukraine, it will be the end of Putin. It, 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 this does seem like a battle to the death right now. Yeah, I would argue that uh, Russia is already losing in many senses because its lightning special operation did not succeed. Succeed. We see Russia bogged down in Ukraine already for two weeks, and it has met, met the remarkable resistance. So what we are witnessing now is, I think, a proof of grave miscalculations that Kremlin has made. Uh, proof that, uh, I mean, the, the end game was to stop Ukraine from slipping out of its zone of the privileged interests. And there was the illusion that uh, Ukraine can still be prevented from doing this. And I think, uh, of course, we understand that it, uh, Russia failed because Ukraine's departure from Russia is irreversible. And current war just cements this fact for the future Ukrainian generations. Mm -hmm. And uh, also that Putin tried to stop Russia's decline by starting a bloody and risky war because the calculation was that uh, uh, that there was a thinking there will be no united response. He miscalculated, he was mistaken. And that also uh, that Russia, if there is an international response, would be able to absorb those costs, mm -hmm. significant costs. The thinking was like that. So, and again, we see that the the magnitude, the scale of the response was so significant that it's it's very unlikely, or, or Russian economy, it was a heavy blow to the Russian economy. And even in Russian terms, I mean, we know there is a very high tolerance uh, for for the human losses, you know, for the for the economic losses. But even in Russian terms, the, this has been a significant blow. So we don't have certainty, replying to a question, that Putin's regime will fall as a result of the war, but its foundations have been severely yeah. shaken, I would, I would argue. So uh, yes, Ukraine is subjected to, uh, to immense destruction at the moment, but I would argue that it's the start of the destruction of the Putin regime as well. Yeah, no, I would, I would, I would, I would argue the same. Putin's miscalculated. He miscalculated the resolve of the Ukrainian people. He miscalculated about the unity of the West. He miscalculated about the severity of the sanctions, um, and he's going to pay a price for that. Sasha, what are your thoughts? Well, certainly we are paying extremely high price for our sovereignty and independence, and uh, it's the the struggle for survival. Uh, if I draw a historical parallel, in 1920s. Uh, Ukrainians uh, lost uh, their statehood, and we paid for that with millions of people starved to death, yeah. uh, the repressed, uh, killed, deported, and used as the as the uh, cannon meat for the uh, Moscow uh, adventures elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So that's why we keep uh, thinking about it. So that we, we have no uh, other choice but to protect uh, our existence. Uh, so the whole Ukrainian nation, composed of different ethnic, ethnic language and religious roots, uh, are united to protect yeah. our statehood. And certainly, it's uh, it's worth something. Being a Ukrainian Greek, I, I certainly have some parallels in history, and I see in, uh, this war as a war between Athens and the Persian Empire. Mm -hmm. And as Greeks a small nation uh, united uh, in the face of the bigger uh, and more authoritarian in, in, in contemporary terms uh, uh, nation. Uh, they were inspired by the freedom and by the values and they managed to to, to beat uh, the Persians. And I would uh, bet on, on what Mr. Uh, McMaster said uh, yesterday, that he believes that there are actually chances of Ukraine of winning. And I believe that this destruction process as in Russia has begun. And I'm not talking about uh, that the best of the Russians flew the country, uh, even though nobody is bombing uh, Russia at the moment. And uh, all those measures of the government of Russia, I mean, limiting the freedoms uh, in, in Russia, and including economic ones, uh, are going to undermine uh, their ability to withstand this fortress. So I believe uh, from the moral, uh, from the political, economic, and other points of view, uh, those uh, processes have been launched, and uh, they are going to destroy Russia as we know it. 
Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, the, the, the Athens and Persia uh, analogy, because actually that set the course of Western, Western civilization would not have gone along the course that it did, as any historian knows, um, if, 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 if Athens had not won there. So that's so maybe Ukraine is playing this vital role right now, I think, and I, I don't think this is an exaggeration, in revitalizing our faith in, in, in Western civilization and liberal democracy. I mean, Ukraine's doing a, a service to the world right now, showing us that democracy matters. If, and if, if I may add just, just one historical thing as well, that uh, Ukraine demolished two empires, uh, the, uh, the uh, Russian Empire and then the Soviet Empire. We played a crucial role, so that's why we need to uh, demolish uh, the, uh, the Third Reich uh, of Russian mm -hmm. Empire. And secondly, uh, we gave birth to two nations, to the Greeks, because Mariupol was the birthplace for the Greek uh, identity and ideology, and to Israel, because a lot of uh, Ukrainian Jews went to, to Israel and they were uh, the founders of this state. So we need to repeat this uh, uh, lesson on our own turf and recreate Ukraine on a new ground. Yeah, this is clearly one of... Go ahead, Volodya. Yeah, just very quickly, I mean, I want to reinforce the point on Ukraine's resilience. You mentioned already that Putin underestimated Ukrainian people. And by people, we really mean people. It's not just military or yep. not just the government, because his ex expectation was that the government would collapse and the military would collapse. Neither did. But I will bring it further down the road. I mean, it, Ukraine is complete uh, opposite of what we can call a failed state right now. Mm -hmm. Under the strenuous, enormous assault of Russia, everything's working. I mean, look, the banks are open and working. People are getting their salaries. You know, uh, clerks are coming to work. I mean, medics are coming to work. I mean, uh, the ministers in the government, they're all in their places from bunkers. They're solving certain issues. The transportation is, is being provided. The Ukrazalizhnitsa, you know, the railways mm -hmm. of Ukraine mm -hmm. is working. It's unbelievable that we yep. are under this total annihilation kind of war and still people are showing up to work and working uh, and the system is not falling apart and, and when you add to this certain financial assistance and big numbers that we're getting yep. from the west you're getting much more positive figure even though of course everyone is right and sasha said that too that we're paying a huge price for each yes. day of that resistance but but we know what is resistance for and there is no appetite for capitulation whatsoever here in ukraine on the contrary people are shocked people are tearful uh, but uh, the prevailing feeling is anger. Anger is uniting people. Like, what are you doing to us? Including, of course, everyone in the east and the south of Ukraine, which is hammered so heavily, which is where you have this uh, you know, Russian war potentially. You know, that is dead. Putin is killing any yeah, kind no, of that idea is that idea is done. For the Russian <laughs> war in Ukraine. That's it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that, that's certainly the case. And yeah, and one of one of what I always tell my students as this was as we we're moving up into the run up to the war. And one of my favorite sound bites I use in media appearances: Don't ever get in a fight with a Ukrainian. Uh, you might win the fight, but you're gonna you're gonna suffer like some injuries. You're gonna get a black eye and a broken nose and some broken bones. Um, what I wanted to move into now is this debate that's going on right now about how to arm Ukraine, because um, this is actually a very important debate right now. It's 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 getting rather fraught and rather emotional here in 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 the West over this the debate over a no-fly zone, the debate over how to get fighter jets to Ukraine and other weapons. Um, and there seems to be this the, a, a, an increasing frustration on the part of Ukrainians about this. Um, now, I'm looking at it from here in Washington, and I can, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to, 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 to people close to these decisions, and I, you know, there, there, there are, there's concerns. I mean, a no-fly zone means engaging the Russian military directly, and we all know where that can go. And so there's, there are legitimate concerns about this. The debate over the fighter jets I find a little bit more puzzling. Because really, what's the difference between giving Ukraine a Stinger, a Javelin, or a fighter jet? The thing is, it's harder to get a fighter jet into Ukraine. This is what I'm worried. And my understanding is that the administration is concerned, particularly the Pentagon is concerned, that flying a fighter jet into Ukraine from, from Poland uh, into contested airspace is, 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 is dicey business. I, I just want to, you're all, in addition to being Ukrainians and people that are on the ground, you're all experts in, in, in military political affairs. So I, I wanted to get your sense of how this debate that we are having over here in the West about how to do this and whether to do this, um, how it looks from there. From where I sit, I thought a no-fly zone was something we weren't even going to discuss because it means we might have to engage the Russians. And now it's 
it, the answer is still no right now, but uh, the needle's moving a little bit. And I'm wondering if this is not a possibility. How does it look where you guys are sitting? Vlad, why don't you start us off there? Okay. Well, of course we are frustrated. But, I mean, on one hand, we are thankful and grateful to, for all assistance we've received so far. I mean, when New York Times wrote uh, in, uh, his, in the article, I think, three days ago, that since the start of the war, we have received 17,000 anti-tank weapons. Mm. That is something. That is an amazing number. I mean, that's basically, that's basically uh, I don't know, every second Ukrainian military pers person now has an anti-tank on her hands. You know, that's, that's something. So, so we should not uh, disregard that uh, assistance that we, we, we receive. And also we've learned that even prior to the start of the invasion, there have been a lot of clandestine kind of quiet supply of Ukrainian military coming from, from U.S. Even during those weeks when Zelensky was saying, I don't know why Americans are talking about invasion, uh, he was still receiving all of those mm. weapons. So, so, so thank you for that. But having said that, of course, the no-fly zone, my personal position was from day one that we shouldn't focus on that because it's not going to happen. And therefore, we shouldn't waste our energy on, on, on demanding for that to happen because it wouldn't. But like you said, I think the circumstances might change uh, with the war coming maybe further down the west of Ukraine, and uh, if there will be a new idea of some kind of a humanitarian shelter zone uh, protected from, from the sky that might fly better, this idea with the Western public. With, uh, with the jet fighters, of course, it was mishandled better. Yes, by yeah, everyone. That, was, that was miscommunication. By, by everyone everyone by lost the at some point. Yeah. First, who was, who was pushing Borrell? To, to, to mention this idea in the first place without consulting with, with those countries. Then, of course, Pauls and Americans, I mean, no, no first actually Blinken saying it's a, they have our green light. And Paul said, okay, we have green light and we have this great idea of giving right. also fighter jets to, to Americans and Americans will fly into Ukraine. And Americans say no. And, and of course, the last night's uh, press conference by Secretary, press secretary of uh, Pentagon, Mr. Kirby, yeah. is very disappointing and confusing. And he didn't, he didn't provide many answers for a lot of questions that public, the press had in the room. Like, why are you calling the plan, which you said is fine, it's a great idea, you, have, you gave green, like green light, part of your administration did. I don't know, is it in, inter-agency inter disagreement in this case? The yeah, that's, I, I think that's probably it, and I think it's the right. And now you're saying it's a bad plan. You're basically saying it's a bad plan, it should be done, it, should, it would not help Ukraine. You know, how that could be happening within like two or three days, such a drastic change of position within the administration. Because we thought the Biden administration is one which is coherent, you know, working in synergy. And apparently it is not, maybe. Well, it, so it right is, now, of course, the, the, focus is in the, the focus is on the missiles, you know, the, the service-to-air uh, service missiles. And we need that. And anti-aircraft weapons, we need that. Uh, we can protect the sky with them. But we cannot attack Russian convoys near Kiev with them. All right. right. For that, we actually do need... Uh, uh, those fighters. If so, our fighters, whatever small number we have, are performing actually extremely well, they are. extremely well in, the, in this last two weeks, imagine what just a couple dozens of those, uh, or maybe 38 or 70 of them would do. That would really change the correlation of forces in the sky for us. So it's a big issue. You know, and I, I would agree, Volodya, that the we, we need to get those fighter jets to Ukraine. That's 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 absolutely the case. Um, the no-fly zone, I kind of look at as a little bit of a bright, shiny object. Most of the the shells that are hitting Ukrainian cities are not coming from the air. They're they're long range. They're long, it's long range artillery. Um, that that that's 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 what most military experts are saying now. Marina, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, for me, the debate about the fighter jets is an indication that the urgency of this issue for Ukraine is not so well understood, either not well understood, or that the U.S. or Western decision makers still cling to this outdated no notion of non-escalation, you know, mm. when yes. we are yes. in the midst of the war actually going on already. So uh, Ukraine should be given a fighting chance, you know. Mm. Ukraine asked for the fighter jets, uh, jets to defend itself, uh, understanding the, you know, the concerns of NATO, uh, you know, to, that it doesn't want to risk direct confrontation with Russia by creating a no-fly zone. And the urgency is there because, of course, we, we've said already, the Russia, di Russia did not still establish the air superiority, 
But again, there is the urgency because Ukraine needs to boost its air defense. And I've heard experts saying that, oh, look, it's not useful to you. Those air jets are not going to help you. So just, you know, man pads, those man portable, uh, you know, anti-aircraft missile systems would be more useful. But it shouldn't be either or. Yeah. It mm-hmm. shouldn't be mutually exclusive, you know. So extraordinary situation requires extraordinary decisions. And also, when somebody says that your Ukrainian soldiers are not trained on Western systems, are not trained on those MiG-29s, which Poland, Slovakia, Romania and Bulgaria already updated according to NATO standards. All right, I mean, we we understand, but in essence, I mean, there there are technical limitations, but it's a considerable, but I would say not insurmountable problem, especially taking into account the number of uh, Western uh, military, you know, volunteers who are eager to come to Ukraine, actually, you know, to support Ukrainian, uh, you know, resistance and armed efforts. So I think that some unorthodox solutions are very needed at the moment because we are still very much thinking in non-escalatory terms, yes. you know, which are absolutely outdated and 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 you know they are even dangerous. No, I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly, Marina. And as I've watched this debate kind of evolve here in Washington and other Western capitals, I've seen this willingness on sanctions to go places that we weren't willing to go in the beginning. Remember, SWIFT was off the table in the beginning, and then until it was. And sanctioning the Russian central bank was off the table until it was. And sanctioning Russian oil exports, for at least from the United States' perspective, was off the table until it wasn't. And now I'm expecting Europe to come along on the energy sanctions. I expect we're going to see a similar dynamic manifest itself with 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 the more kinetic aspects of this, starting with the fighter jets. But I'm 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 not ruling out that we might see a no, a no fly zone at some point. I mean, seeing a maternity hospital bombed is is enough to to to, to shake every anybody um, out of their complacency. Uh, Sasha, what are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, so, so first of all, I understand the rationale behind uh, the unwillingness of the United States, first and foremost, uh, to uh, g- to get closer to the possible conflict between the nuclear powers. Uh, but uh, I believe it was not really wise to rule out uh, the uh, involvement, the military involvement of the United States in this war or uh, this no-fly zone, because even without any real plans to impose such a zone, it would be a pretty good argument. Ambiguity is uh, the one of the key elements uh, uh, Russia is employing every time. Secondly, uh, I think that uh, the uh, the strategists in Washington and in European capitals need to think that uh, this conflict is going to spill out uh, out of Ukraine. So the uh, first of all, uh, Putin loves to create new tensions, new po- uh, hot points elsewhere. It would it might be in the Balkans where Serbs uh, are yeah. supporting Russia and Russia is supporting Serbs and it's on the belly of Europe, or it might be against uh, the one of the countries of Eastern flank. Because Putin needs to show that Article 5 doesn't work. I'm not telling that he's going to attack, uh, openly attack, uh, let's say, Estonia, but he's going to provoke and yeah. to show that the, the that Washington's uh, ironclad guarantees are not uh, working. Uh, secondly, uh, if we're talking about the... Uh, that would be a fatal the, mistake, Sasha. That, not, on his part, would be a fatal mistake. Yeah, that, that's right. And if you're talking about other things, uh, we, we still see that the European Union is more an idea of getting on us uh, the candidate status, yes. which is not good because, you know, uh, it means that Putin is winning uh, so far. Then there is an uh, uh, issue with regard to the NATO membership. Germany, who was divided and occupied by nuclear Soviet Union, was admitted to uh, to NATO in 1955. So now they are refusing our right to uh, for self-defense, which is wrong. And certainly, uh, I'm happy that NATO in the United States and the rest of the Western alliance said that open door policy is in place and Russia has no formal veto power. But Germany provides Russia with de facto veto power because they are they are not allowing us to get membership action plan, which means that uh, Putin is winning in this way. 
And I'm not happy that uh, Germany and France are trying to have this direct communication with Putin, uh, showing him that he is not isolated diplomatically, trying to find compromises with someone who is uh, going to kill a lot of Ukrainians before he will make his yeah. uh, mind uh, to, 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 to negotiate something. So I believe that uh, uh, the West needs to rethink its, uh, uh, let's say, approach towards Russia, to be more proactive and to uh, to meet the challenge of escalation. because. Russia was escalating and this escalation dominance was a pretty good asset of Russia and they are using even uh, the nuclear factor mm -hmm. as escalation. We haven't seen it before. So that's why I believe uh, it's, we should not and the West should not uh, rule out no-fly zone and other things because Russia is not going to stop yeah. in Ukraine. Yeah, no, uh, it's, it's and again, this debate, it's moving. It's so dynamic right now. Um, and again, we're in the fog of war. Um, you're, you, you all are more in the fog of war than we are, but we're in the fog of war here. And this might account for some of the things like the dust up over the over the MiG-29s. Um, I, I think I think the administration is going to recover from this. Um, I think they're they're good. And I think we're going to see a speaking with this, see the alliance and the administration continue to speak with one voice. Before we move into the second half, I just wanted to briefly touch on one thing, and that is Russia's military strategy here and how you guys see it, because I mean, it, 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 obviously, the shock and awe didn't didn't work in the beginning. Um, it failed miserably. Um, and Russia seems to be shifting to a new strategy. Part of that strategy is one of terror, terrorizing civilian populations, similar strategy that they used in Grozny in Chechnya, similar strategy that they used in Aleppo in Syria. Um, but I also see another strategy evolving right now, and that has it has two prongs. And uh, one of them is to cut Ukraine off from the sea, obviously. We're basically going to see a movement west toward Odessa and hope and, and and I think the Russians want to link up with Transnistria actually um, I think that's that's one strategy and then a strategy of the Russian troops in the south moving north and hooking up with the troops in the north cutting off the Ukrainian armed forces that are in the east from the west this is something this is what I'm looking at right now Volodya you're smiling what do you, do you see that or are you smiling because you think I'm wrong no, 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 I'm smiling because I think you're right. Uh, I think uh, that uh, actually that's what they probably want. Uh, one of the first uh, military plans by, of, of Russian invasion that were leaked uh, uh, to the Beowulf magazine mm -hmm. a month ago already, it seems like 10 years ago, but mm -hmm. <laughs> a couple of months ago, you know, uh, was actually calling uh, for, for the first stage of attack around Odessa and encircling Odessa. Uh, from a north uh, uh, east mm -hmm. and meeting with uh, their troops in Transnistria, that didn't happen. And then, of course, we don't know. We never know with these plans when they're leaked, like maybe they're being yeah. leaked for purpose, for a reason, for right. purpose by Russians to mislead us, to scare us, and so on. But, but then, uh, then again, actually, for months we've been debating what was Russia is doing. Is it preparing for invasion or is it intimidation game? And now we know they're preparing for invasion. Mm -hmm. And now there are documents captured by Ukrainian military that tell us that we've been doing this for months and months. Actually, mm -hmm. so American intelligence was right through and through when they were saying, mm -hmm. you know, there is this American expression that if it uh, walks like duck, uh, you know, and looks like duck and so on, it's probably a duck. So it's look, if it looks looking like preparation for invasion, it's probably that what it is, and that that what it was, and sometime probably was lost in terms of better preparing for this. But uh, they are improvising now, I think. You mm. know, uh, can are they ready for entrenched warfare? I don't know. Uh, mm. If there is a capitulation of Ukraine, I don't think it's forthcoming. But uh, say for a moment, we imagine that we meet their uh, quite limited, actually, set of demands now. Recognize Donetsk, Luhansk, so-called People's Republics. Uh, recognize Crimea, part of. Uh, of Russia and then uh, change our constitution so that we have permanent neutral state. Imagine for a moment we go there. Like, what happens next? Do they leave us right. alone? No. Do, no. do their troops even like leave Ukraine, depart from Ukraine immediately after we do that? Probably not. Uh, I'm afraid it's going to be another Minsk situation. Like, we'll yes. be saying, okay, we are ready to sign this, but uh, you depart. I mean, you, you go out with your troops from Ukraine and they would say, no, no, no. Uh, we're going to stay for a while and then we're going to make sure that you're following through on your, you know, on your promises and something like that. I'm going into hypotheticals that no one is Ukraine in, in Ukraine is actually considering contemplating right now because the mood is definitely not. No, those, those demands are right? not. But, but uh, there's no easy way out. Or, I mean, how they can even 
logistically withdraw the troops at this current point when they kind of bogged down so many places in Ukraine without the gasoline. You know, imagine right. for a moment Kremlin says, okay, we're withdrawing. How are you doing that? You, you, you want to be <laughs> waiting for Ukrainians to give them gasoline and fix the road for their, for their tanks to actually roll out of Ukraine? I mean, there are so many questions in the air right now, and I don't know what scenario is for shaping, but something is shaping, and of course it's yep. uh, costing us lives uh, every day, but uh, we'll see what, 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 what gives. Yeah, it's seeing, visualizing the end game here is so hard. Marina, you were smiling and nodding. What did, did you have some thoughts here? Yeah, I agree that it's difficult for Kremlin to backpedal already at the moment. You know, and uh, that's why I would argue that the negotiations do not have chance at, and Russia is still trying, you know, to, to make a breakthrough in this military operation. And uh, Russia is proceeding total goals in, in Ukraine by total means. So I think what we are witnessing now for, for a number of days already, how indiscriminate their actions became, you know, so it's not precision ac actions targeting the military infrastructure. And this is, this of course entails a huge loss of human life for Ukrainians, of course for Russian soldiers as well, you know, but, 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 but for its civilian civilian uh, population for Ukrainian armed forces as well. And this is the, the the biggest threat at the moment. So, but I agree with Vladimir, it's very difficult to say what will be this, you know, threshold where they will agree to stop at, at the moment, or whether they will realize that their resources are finite, you know, and they cannot really, you know, have this, achieve this break, breakthrough, and then they will try to negotiate. And it's very likely one of the risks that I see that everybody will be very eager to have a ceasefire, of course, and truth uh, between Russia and Ukraine. And that uh, I very much hope that Ukraine will have a strong position, mm -hmm. you know, not to have the Russian claims that, of course, very ambitious, you know, claims that, that Russia has advanced vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine and, you know, neutrality, uh, recognition of Donbass, uh, Donetsk, Lugansk, Crimea, etc. So not to have those, so to, to really start that you know, those positions are non-starter, actually, yeah, for the situations. And nobody really will, you know, push Ukraine to nobody. be to be more, you know, uh, let's say, reconciliatory. And uh, so, yeah. No, it would be very, very hard for us to push, to, for the West to push Ukraine like it unfairly did on the past uh, regarding Minsk, too. Um, this is a good segue to the second half because I'm very mindful of the clock, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gears now. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at how this war has put Ukraine in the center of the world's attention and how that looks and feels for Ukrainians. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I am your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UCA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me is my old friend and colleague, Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor in the Faculty of International Relations at Mechnikov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. And joining us from London is Marina Bortnuk, an associate fellow at the Royal United Service Institute. And joining us from Kiev Oblast is Alexander Hada, a former official with the Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council, who is currently a fellow at the Center for Defense Strategies. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So suddenly Ukrainian flags are ubiquitous. In cities across the world, buildings, landmarks, and monuments are being lit up in yellow and blue. 
Images of Ukrainian farmers towing away Russian tanks have become iconic. And of course, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has become something of an international rock star, and justifiably so. But amid this outpouring of sympathy and respect, Ukrainians are suffering. As Russia bombs schools, hospitals, and other civilian targets, families are being torn apart as the largest flow of refugees since World War II leaves the country. And as I watch this split-screen moment from the safety of Washington, I can't help but wonder, how does this look to Ukrainians? Because flying the Ukrainian flag or wearing a Ukrainian lapel pin is one thing, but being willing to take risks, the risks involved in implementing a no-fly zone, for example, or boycotting Russian energy, is something else entirely. Volodya, what are your thoughts about this? Because this is something I've been thinking about a lot. I almost feel guilty about as I'm sitting here in the, you know, safely in Washington D.C., saying yes, you know, doing all I can from here to support Ukraine. Looking at what's going on on the ground, how does this look to you? The way Ukraine has kind of become the center of the world's attention now. All right. Well, first of all, Brian, don't look. I mean, you're not guilty of anything. I mean, you're trying to help, and we know your position for years. And people like yourself. I mean, you're really helpful now. Uh, some people, though, in the West, they are looking at this as some kind of entertainment. And I, I'm afraid there are some people in the West who are having their popcorn next to them when they watch TV coverage from Ukraine. And that's a problem. Or they, like they're playing some video game or something. Uh, and uh, there's not. But that being said, uh, at the same time, we're seeing a, a huge outpour of sympathy for Ukraine. Never anything on that on that scale happened in our Ukrainian history. Demonstrations, manifestations, you know, various sports events across the globe and so on. And that's uh, that's a lot. That's a lot for us. We appreciate that. Zelensky himself, yes, as a rock star, but uh, more as a as an, an adequate wartime leader. Yes. And uh, I always, when I say that, I always mention as well that I have been very critical of him. No, I didn't vote for him. Uh, I think he made a huge share of mistakes, but for what what he's doing for the last two weeks, that's really mobilizing the you know the people. He is mm-hmm. with the people, people with him. It's a major breach. I don't think the government and the people in Ukrainian history of 30 years plus has ever been closer than it is yep. right now because he is there for us and we are there for him. You know, we're together. You know, we're not surrendering, and that's something that is very important for Ukrainian uh, spirit, collective spirit. Uh, but then the families are being torn apart, you're right. And uh, in addition to people who are leaving Ukraine, over 2 million already, there are tons of IDPs. I actually wrote a little piece for Ponders Eurasia today, just a little commentary piece, uh, bringing attention to this issue, because we're already seeing millions and millions of internally displaced mm-hmm. persons. Because even the Donbass stage of the war in 2014 has produced something one, like 1.5 million people displaced, internally displaced people. But right now, the area of fighting is much bigger. And people are just fleeing huge numbers and they are not counted yet. They're not supported. Many of them prefer to stay within Ukraine, even when given a chance to leave the country. Some families don't want to disunite uh, because, of course, uh, the men are not allowed to leave. And then some families decide, OK, we're going to stay with our husbands and our brothers because they can't leave for, for a moment. So it's becoming it's a huge issue. I mean, logistically, financially. Uh, emotionally, just humanly, you know, in terms of a human drama that uh, that is unfolding before our eyes. And here uh, as well, the, the assistance of the West is, is extr- instrumental, extremely important, critical. I mean, not only to those people who left Ukraine already and they deserve their help and they're getting the help, the reports that we're receiving from all those countries in Europe are just uh, heartwarming yeah. because uh, they really take uh, our women and children uh, in uh, in such a warm way. But uh, also helping Ukraine to deal with this issue of internally displaced persons, because many of them move to central and western Ukraine and they can have some money to rent a house or a flat for a week or two, but maybe not more. And their, you know, I don't know, their fabric or their factory that they've been working back home is destroyed or something. They're not getting any salary. It's going to be a big issue. And here there should be a talk about a Marshall Plan for Ukraine. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no. And one of the things that's striking me is I get like texts and messages from friends in Europe saying, you know, they're 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 opening up their homes to Ukrainians who are coming to Europe. I just was in a conversation with a friend in Prague about that, how his whole village 
is opening up all their homes for 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 Ukrainians. You mentioned Zelensky too, and I I I was skeptical about him in the beginning as well, Volodya. We, we've we've had this conversation going back, but he's he's really he's really shown that he's got a bit of Churchill in him, um, and not just in his speech uh, before the uh, British Parliament that we that we played at the outset of the program today. I posted on on Twitter the other day, and this was a, an honest sentiment: is that compared to Zelensky right now, Western leaders, even the ones I like and respect and support. They seem small compared to him right now. They seem they all seem small. Um, Marina, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, well, yes, uh, I agree. And I, I think we all see how Ukrainians were heartened, you know, by the display of the solidarity that they received. And be assured that Ukrainians in the besieged cities, uh, you know, and in the parts of Ukraine uh, not under attack, they, they are glued to their to the screens of their mobiles following what the celebrities, leaders mm-hmm. of the other countries, opinion makers are saying about, about the war, how they support Ukraine. So those displays of solidarity are very, very important. Uh, and yeah, with the introduction of sanction, sanctions, with the introduction, you know, with the uh, kicking Russia out of the SWIFT, Many Ukrainians would not, you know, understand the intricacies of mm. the of the finances, why SWIFT is important. But this has been, you know, an idea that united millions of people. Mm. And this has been so reassuring. And, you know, the 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 sanctions introduced against Russia. So this was all all followed. This this boosts the morale of, of the people who are under fire. So this is very important to follow through the sanctions mm. now. You know, when we have the idea that uh, Russian, you know, the production of Russian gas and oil and the import of Russian gas and oil should be under sanctions. And, you know, amazing idea of the European Commission, the roadmap offered mm. by the end of the year to decrease the by two thirds, you know, the, the, the consumption of the Russian, uh, the Russian gas. So this all needs to be followed for the sake, of, of course, of, of Europe itself, but also for, for people in Ukraine who, who are watching those signals. And it's very important for them to withstand. Their present is endangered. So we need to give them perspective of their future. Yeah. You know, so they, they need to know that if Russia is destroying their present, they still have the future to live for. And that's why this application for the EU membership it's so important. One would not really, you know, understand this probably somewhere, you know, in, in Europe, how important it is for Ukrainian people when the European Parliament, you know, supports this Euro- mm-hmm. Ukrainian plea, uh, you know, and adopts adopts uh, this motion with the call to start this formal procedure with Ukraine. So, I mean, this this is very symbolic, uh, important, those symbolical displays, but also many other concrete things that, uh, Ukrainian government is asking at the moment. You've mentioned Zelensky. I agree. He rose up to the occasion. You know, he grew as a leader. And when when he makes the plea to the, you know, to NATO that, okay, if you don't close our skies, please at least provide the weapons. Uh, mm. Help us with the weapons. We will fight. We will shoulder this primary responsibility ourselves. And of course, for millions of Ukrainians, if those pleas are left unheard, I mean, it it will be a huge trauma, also, you know, and the, 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 which which we don't really understand the scale, uh, probably of the of the effect uh, of of Ukrainians feeling that they are basically in strategic solitude there. Yeah, left to yeah. die alone. I mean, yeah, and I, I mean, I firmly believe, Marina, and I, I actually will say this publicly because I think it's true. It's a prediction. If Ukraine survives this war, it will be a member of the European Union. Uh, and this is for the Europeans to decide, not for an American like me. But just looking at the trends, I just don't see how Europe could 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 refuse uh, Ukraine. And I'm having an increasingly hard time imagining NATO uh, not admitting Ukraine if Ukraine survives this war. So I, I'm willing to make that that prediction publicly. What we're seeing now is is Ukraine becoming in the eyes of Europeans for the first time, fully European. I think this is what we're witnessing right now. And just the admission to the European Union that I think is going to be inevitable if Ukraine survives this war is just going to be the formalization of that. Alexander, your thoughts? Well, uh, you know, we have uh, the expression that Ukrainians are the nation of uh, sleeping angels, and we've been uh, disturbed by this uh, dying beer. Uh, so uh, certainly uh, we, we have something, uh, we have some advantage. But uh, frankly speaking, that uh, we, Europe whole free and at peace is not possible 
without accommodation of Ukrainian legitimate security concerns. And that's why I would rather uh, bet on NATO membership rather than European Union, even though it's equally important for Ukrainian general public and for our leadership. Uh, Ukraine is annihilating the most uh, fighting ready assets of Russia, destroying hundreds of tanks, APCs and other sophisticated and not uh, equipment. And I believe it's a huge contribution of Ukraine into the whole European security. We show that Russia is not that uh, powerful in military terms, and that's why the, the West needs to adjust its policies towards Russia and towards Ukraine as well. Uh, and certainly we are showing uh, and pushing actually the West to adjust uh, their strategies, because what they are doing with Russia it should be uh, should be sort of a, an example and should be sort of a, uh, a thing they th should think about uh, when they are dealing with China as well, because no, China is watching. China is uh, is studying how, how the West is reacting because we see that United Nations uh, uh, system is not working, and and it's something that is working is uh, the uh, let's say uh, ad hoc union of the liberal-minded and uh, free-loving nations. And I believe it's the only way how it's possible to compete into the 21st century with those authoritarian regime. But we need something for Ukraine, and it's not just arms now. Uh, that we uh, survive and we, we, we keep fighting and we win, I believe uh, it's going to happen. But we need some prospects in terms of security. I'm talking about uh, long-term projects uh, like uh, air defense, uh, mm. missile defense, uh, the air force, uh, naval force, and other things even uh, before we join NATO. And certainly we need to have uh, good signals and clear signals, not just about the half-open doors of NATO, but uh, the open enough uh, to for Ukraine to uh, enter the, the the alliance with the action uh, membership action plan or something of that. So I believe that uh, there is a need to show, let's say, something that is beyond uh, the horizon of this war, which is not going to stop mm -hmm. uh, in a couple of weeks. We, we need to have this perspective and it, it will in, it, it strengthen our morale and it strengthen our ability to fight. And we know uh, where is our place in this war. Okay, great. We are bumping up against the end here, but there's one thing I did want to do on this program, since I have three Ukrainian citizens sitting here before me, and that this program does is is I, I think listened to by you know some people that 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 you know make decisions here. Um, what do you want to say? What do you want to say to the West? A couple of sentences each. What what do you what what message do you want to send to the West as we're recording here on March 10th, 2020, as the war enters its third week? Volodya, why don't you start us off? Right, stay on the message, stay what, on what you're doing, uh, uh, hammer Russia for their absolutely terrible, unprovoked, uh, premeditated war, uh, help Ukraine to withstand militarily and financially, and help Ukraine politically to be closer to the European family of nations. Uh, that needs to be uh, done in the coming weeks, uh, even more so than in previous weeks, and I think uh, that we can prevail together, only if together, because Ukraine is indeed, I mean, uh, now fighting for the rest of the civilized world. We've been saying that we are a defensive outpost uh, of the civilized world for a number of years now, but it was kind of falling on deaf ears often in the West. But right now, I think it's quite obvious to everyone that we are indeed preventing uh, for, for the Western civilization from a bigger threat, defending, becoming a buffer. Mm -hmm. Uh, from a bigger threat. Everyone is waking up. And part, part of the explanation of what's going on is that everyone is really scared, not just in Baltics or Romania or Poland. I mean, entire Europe is, I mean, is really yep. scared. I saw a sociological poll out of the day from El País in Spain. Most Spaniards now think that Russia is a major threat to, to Russia, mm. to, to, to Spain. So that's Spain we're talking about. So right. I guess people are waking up and for good reason. Marina? Yeah, my message would be that Russia is at war with Ukraine, but Russia is at war with the West as well. And I think we need to make a correct diagnosis here that it concerns everybody in the West too, what is happening in Ukraine at the moment. It's not some distant conflict. And let us start with, uh, with using the correct terminology as well. Let us abandon this absolutely inappropriate wording of Ukraine crisis. Yes. Or you know, Ukraine conflict in Ukraine, which I see even the UN using, you know, freehandedly, yep. just just this term. Let us call this for what it is, you know, it is a Russian war against Ukraine. And so, and let us be prepared. 
we should brace ourselves for the peer, for the for the hardships. We should brace ourselves for for the for the turbulence because, of course, I mean, challenge in Russia. It, we all understand that it entails risks, but there is no other way out. So, costs of not challenging Russia will exceed the costs of actually abstaining from this fight. Sasha, last word to you briefly. Uh, okay, on Ukraine, Ukraine preaches open door policies, so uh, NATO and EU should uh, join Ukraine. Uh, and on <laughs> Russia, I believe the West need to think seriously about the regime change because this insane guy who is sitting in the bunker. And uh, with the all uh, nuclear, uh, biological and chemical, uh, I'm not talking about even uh, conventional uh, arms. And he's a revisionist and he's imperialist and is a great and clear danger, not just to Ukraine, not just to Europe, but as a whole world. That's why the, it's, in, it's in the sake of the people of, of Russia, in the sake of uh, you, all Europeans, we need to just uh, to finish the business uh, with Russia and certainly supporting Ukraine with arms, money and humanitarian support, political support, other things is the best way how to solve the Russian problem that it's not, it's, it's not going to exist in 21st century. Okay, and on that note, we shall wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you that you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Eurasia Center. And joining me has been my old friend and colleague, Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor at the Faculty of International Relations at Mexico National University. University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. Joining us from London has been Marina Varadnuk, an associate fellow at the Royal United Service Institute. And joining us from Kiev Oblast has been Alexander Hara, a former official with Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council who is currently a fellow at the Center for Defense Strategies. Thank you all for an enlightening discussion. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Smith handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.